the impermanence of all that exists is easily seen in a weekend such as this. It's already almost over. And didn't we only just start? And the same with one's whole life. It's very quickly over. And this is one of the reasons why one should contemplate one's own death in order to arouse some urgency for that which is really important in life. What does one really want to do? I quite often tell the uh, people in the courses that especially now, at the beginning of a new year, it's very helpful to make a list of the things that one wants out of life and then check the list two days later and cross out those things which don't seem so important anymore. Until that list is whittled down probably to one thing. Try it out and see. And then if that list is whittled down to maybe just peace and happiness, then find out how to get that. And make a list what you think will provide peace and happiness and cross off all those that you've tried already and didn't work. And don't think if you're a little cleverer next time it's going to work. <laughs> We've all been clever enough already. It just doesn't work out there. It only works inside. It's very useful to make such a list with pen and paper because it stares one in the face and it says something about oneself and that's what one is mostly interested in. Having a whole year ahead of one almost a whole year it means that we can actually do something with that year <coughs> if we know what we want one of the interesting things is that one mostly gets what one wants except for the fact that after one's got it one finds out it wasn't really what one wanted it promised something like fool's gold it glitters but it's worth nothing so make sure that you want the right things the right things are never connected to ego support and ego cherishing they are always connected to giving and letting go but everyone has to do it for themselves before I go into further what I call daily Dhamma I think I'd like to finish up with the hindrances 
and the factors of meditation briefly so that you have at least a completeness of that particular teaching. You know, as you can imagine, teachings of the Buddha are vast and consist of innumerable guidelines. But we have to pick out those that we can use immediately. In this tradition, the Buddha gave 17 and a half thousand discourses, each one containing teaching how to do it, how to get rid of suffering. Well, obviously, we can't talk about 17 and a half thousand discourses, but we can at least finish the one that we started. This fly really wants to know about it, doesn't she? <laughs> anyway, if you can get some benefit out of this. <laughs> now, I've spoken about three hindrances and three factors of meditation. The three hindrances, just to repeat, where the uh, floss and torpor of the mind, the skeptical doubt, and the ill will. And the factors of meditation that counteract those are in the same order, the initial application to the meditation subject, the sustained application to the meditation subject, and the <clears throat> pity or delight, the delightful sensation which arises when the concentration has become somewhat established. It doesn't have to be total or perfect. Perfection is a prerogative of the Arahant, the fully enlightened anyway. We don't have to look for it. But in this case, the concentration can be much less than perfect. It just has to be established to the point where we can actually give ourselves to the practice completely at the time of meditating. Now, the next factor of the meditation which arises automatically together with that delightful sensation is joy. Now, there are a number of words for joy in the Pali language. This particular one is sukha, and it is a meditative joy. It's not the kind of joyfulness which we have when we get a good news or even when we hear a Dhamma talk and we realize that this can be helpful to us, we can experience joy. And if we do, it will be very helpful to us. But this is a different joy. This is a meditative joy. It comes from inside of oneself and is independent of outer conditions. It is a very important thing in the meditative path because it tells us without a shadow of a doubt that what we've been looking for all over the world, all over the place, we've got it right within. All we have to do is stop thinking, stop acting and reacting and just listen quietly to ourselves with concentration, obviously. Now, most of you find it difficult still to concentrate, but that's only due to the fact that we're here only for a short time. 
you take a longer course, you will find that the concentration improves enormously. It probably deteriorates again at home, but at least you know what it's all about. This joy, called Sukha, the opposite of Dukkha, is the antidote for restlessness and worry, which is our fourth hindrance. Um, restlessness and worry are states of mind which are created out of thinking about the future and the past. Now, the future is something we worry about. Are we going to have enough money for our old age? Are we going to have a lot of pain when we are ready to die? Are our children going to make it all right? Are our partners going to keep on loving us? And so on. Or is the state of the world going to be very difficult? Are they going to throw an atomic bomb? Or whatever it is we're worrying about. Everybody has their own pet worries. And some people make quite a hobby out of that. They enjoy worrying. They're worriers. And they talk about their worries. They don't talk about them very profoundly, but they certainly talk about them. And they sound quite reasonable. And you know why people enjoy worrying? Because it gives them an ego support. I am worrying about something which is worrisome. But it certainly doesn't give clarity of mind because we never find out whether that what we're worrying about is actually something that needs to be worried about or is actually going to happen. We just keep on worrying. And the other way, the other um, thing that happens, the restlessness, is something that most people don't even know they have it. Very often they notice it only when they become impatient. Impatience goes together with restlessness. Restlessness means that we are looking for something we haven't got. We're looking here and there. We're going from one place to the next. We're doing one thing and then another. Our mind is not at ease and quiet and still. It worries about this and that and wanders from one thing to the other because there's restlessness because we haven't found that which is fulfilling. Restlessness, unfortunately, only totally disappears when one has already seen liberation, Nibbana, three times, one step before fully enlight- being fully enlightened. That's when curiosity, restlessness, wanting things disappears. So we have a fair way to go till that happens. However, the joy which arises in the meditation is an antidote for restlessness and worry because at that time at least we have gained a foothold into that which we want, inner joy. And having gained that foothold of inner joy, restlessness and worry cannot arise at that time. We've got what we wanted. It arises together with the delightful sensation, because one can only be joyful about that. And as the path continues, it becomes the next meditation subject. But at this time, in the first 
um, absorption, it is a companion to the delightful sensation. And having experienced it, that inner joy, which is a companion with the other, we know for sure that we never had anything like it from any of the pleasures of the senses. Not any. It's not available. It's an inner sweetness which arises, which is totally fulfilling and totally encompassing and something that people search the world over to get. But the spiritual way is the opposite. It's to let go. If we want to get it, we are sure not to get near it. What we have to do is we have to let go of the thinking, we have to let go of the wanting, of the opinions, of the viewpoints, of the hopes, of the remembrances, of the plans for the future, and just be there completely at ease with oneself. Having watched the breath long enough to get to that delightful sensation, which I already explained, this arises with it automatically. It brings a great deal of insight because it makes it possible to be less concerned about the pleasures of the world, to be less concerned whether we get them or not, don't get them, to be less searching for them. In other words, it frees our time and our energy. And having freed time and energy, we can then quite clearly see where to put that time and that energy, whether there is something different we could do with it. Everybody only has a certain amount of time and energy, and it needs to be used in the most effective manner because it's limited, and all our life is limited. It's um, bound by death. So if we <coughs> have taken heed of that, contemplating also our own death, it makes it possible to see what is the most important thing to do in life. Meditation as such is only one aspect of the spiritual path. It's not the spiritual path itself. It's an essential means of the spiritual path, but it's certainly not all of it. It is a means because it frees the mind from so many unnecessary thoughts and ideas and puts it straightforward on the path towards understanding and eventually seeing absolute reality. So this sukha, this joy that arises simultaneously in that very first step on the meditative path after we've got past our thinking and worrying, that brings not only the joy itself but the insight where to find it. What we have experienced ourselves, nobody can deny. What somebody else tells us, 
we may believe or disbelieve. The Buddha was not concerned about believe or disbelieve. He said only one thing is necessary, try it out. If it works, fine. If it doesn't, <coughs> well, try something else. He had no intention of convincing anyone of anything. When a person like the Buddha speaks from his own experience, there's no need to convince anyone. There's only his compassion <coughs> to share it with others. And if they want to try it, that's fine. There's only enough confidence to keep trying, that's all. Worry and restlessness are like, compared by the Buddha, to being slaves. When we worry and are restless, we are slaves to our mind, which pushes us this way and that. Worry pushes us this way, restlessness another way. We are not in charge of the way we want to think. We get worried and restless without wanting to. Nobody really would like to be worried or would like to be restless, and yet practically everyone is. One could say everyone is. So it's like being a slave. And like being a slave who has to obey the whims of the master who pushes his slave around and says, go here, go there, do this, do that, and never has a moment for his own enjoyment. This is what happens to us. We're so used to it, we don't even know it. Once in a while, when we sit quietly, it may arise within that this is what's happening. We feel quite amazed at it. Why should we be like that? But it is a human condition due to the fact that we haven't found what we really want. That kind of inner feeling on which we can rest like a rock. Where we are contented and at ease. This meditative experience brings that about and because it brings it about, and it has to be, of course, repeated every day, because even if we do get concentrated and then don't repeat that every day, we lose that concentration, we also have a residual effect of it, that we don't search anymore for that joy outside of ourselves. The Buddha also compared this particular hindrance with a water pond where the wind is blowing very hard and the water has high waves. It's like a wave motion. Restlessness and worry are like waves in the mind. And there's no peacefulness at all. Because when the wave goes up and when it goes down, there's always the motion which brings with it irritation. Everything that moves has irritation inbuilt. Because as it moves, there's irritation. The fourth factor, sorry, the fifth factor of meditation is one which is essential to all meditations, whether we just watch the breath and get distracted or do loving-kindness meditation or walking meditation or actually do get into the first meditative absorption. And that's one-pointedness. One-pointedness is part of 
focusing on the meditation subject. The more one-pointed we are, the more we have our mind under control. The less one-pointed we are, the more we allow it to <coughs> take off on a tangent. One-pointedness is like a laser beam which stays in one place. Now this one-pointedness has an enormous effect, a very important effect. And it is something that already happens for every meditator, even if the concentration isn't very good. Because the one-pointedness of the mind on the meditation subject counteracts our sensual desire. We can't have both at the same time. So even if we're only focusing on the meditation subject very briefly, at that time, sensual desire is eliminated for that brief time. The more often we do it, the more we get away from that. Sensual desire is, one could say, our greatest hindrance because it promises something. It promises fulfillment. So we desire something and usually we desire things that we can possibly get. We have desires for those possibilities that are within our realm. So with that we have a promise that by getting it we're going to be utterly and completely happy. Does anybody believe that? And yet we're doing it all the time. Why don't we believe our own understanding? It's not possible to be totally and completely happy by getting something or someone. On the contrary, it's going to probably bring about unhappiness. First of all, because the expectation is disappointed. We had this high expectation that we're going to get that one thing or that one person, then everything will be fine from now on. Well, obviously it isn't fine from now on, so we are disappointed. That's the first dukkha we experience. And the second dukkha we experience is the fact that once we have let go of this desire and have actually got it, it's no longer so desirable. It very quickly becomes something we're very used to, and we have to think up a new desire, which we don't find very difficult. We think up a new one. And if we've tried many of them already, we can still think of new ones. Because this is the nature of the world. It's called Papancha in Pali, and it actually has this sound already, the word proliferation. I think, as far as I know, there are 360 different kinds of gum trees. Well, that's proliferation. Nature itself proliferates. Look at all of us. We're all human, Caucasian, and we all look different. That's nature proliferating. Hair is different, skin is different, eyes are different, shape is different, everything's different. 
nature proliferating. So it also proliferates on every other level. So our desires can never be fulfilled because there's always something else that we could get. And because it seems to be as if that was the thing that's going to make the fulfillment happen, we keep on desiring. The strongest desire that we have is sexual desire. Amongst all the desires that we have, the sexuality is the strongest. And on the spiritual path, with the meditation, it is quite possible to transform it. And if it is transformed, it becomes a very strong energy for spirituality. As long as it's a very strong energy for sexuality, it's of course dissipated in sexuality. That doesn't mean sex is bad. It just means it's human. And if we want to get out of Dukkha, we've got to transcend our level of humanity where we are on the marketplace consciousness. The Buddha had, didn't even have the word of sin in his vocabulary. It doesn't exist in Pali. There is no such word. But there is the word of skillful and unskillful. So meditative and calm, meditative and insight pathway makes it possible to transcend and transform. And that strong energy that every human being has can be used very effectively. It can bring about enormous transformation. But from all the other desires which we use in our everyday life, we need to examine them, whether we're spending time and energy which could be used otherwise. And we could also examine whether, having had the same desire so many times, couldn't we outgrow that one and maybe try something else? The results are always the same. Always. There's a momentary satisfaction and the next moment is already satiation. It doesn't keep on being wonderful. So that kind of human condition is common to all of us. We're all like that. We're all in the same boat. But we don't have to keep on paddling the same boat. It's possible to get out. The one-pointedness of meditation shows us that there is a way, even if it's momentary, of being totally without desire. And that brings about a great understanding, or should bring about, namely the understanding that the only way to be completely contented is to be without desire. It's not to get all one's desires fulfilled. This is a worldly way. The worldly way is I have to have that and this and a whole list of things and a whole list of uh, experiences and then I'll be right. On the spiritual path one learns exactly the opposite. No desire, total contentment.
very often people experience then the desire for complete enlightenment. That's fine. It's at least one step up from sexual desire, isn't it? It's still a desire and it's still discontentment. So what is said is one practices with that desire in order to get rid of desire. But what we experience in meditation is the fact that we have moments where because of this one-pointedness there isn't anything we want. And afterwards we can see that that's the only way to be totally at ease, completely contented and completely happy. As soon as we want something, there is restlessness and worry. It's the first and second noble truth of the Buddha's enlightenment statement. When he became enlightened, he stated the four noble truths. The first and second one are that there is dukkha in the world, that there is dissatisfaction, unfulfillment, and that all dukkha has only one cause. Makes it nice and easy, doesn't it? And this one cause is craving, desire, wanting. Which includes, of course, rejecting, not wanting. So whenever we have this opportunity through meditation to experience a moment of non-craving, we're actually experiencing a moment of non-dukkha. We're actually experiencing a moment of liberation. And adding moment to moment, it stands to reason that we will understand that the spiritual path leads only in that direction, letting go of desires more and more. It's easily said. It's difficult to do. But at least one needs to know what can be done. And although the world does exactly the opposite, everybody wants something. If it's just wanting peace and quiet, somehow or other. Although the world seems to be totally opposed to this, we can, through logical conclusion, see very clearly that very few people in this world are happy and contented. We could actually sort of make a survey in our mind. Whom do we know who is really happy and contented? Do we know anyone? And if we do, go and find out how that person did it. It's worth knowing. But it's got to be happiness and contentment which is not at the mercy of outer conditions. It's quite easy to be happy and contented when everything is going well for a moment. And then it breaks down again. So we have actually three factors in the meditative path which are not dependent upon a great deal of concentration. The first one is the initial application to the meditation subject. The second one is the continued application, for however long that may be. And the third one is the one-pointedness. 
Those three are part and parcel of every meditation, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, whatever we have the kind of uh, judgment about it. And these three counteract sloth and torpor, skeptical doubt, and sensual desire. And they give us, because of their effectiveness in meditation, the insight into the fact that our sensual desires do not fulfill us. On the contrary, they disappoint us when they are fulfilled. And that should give rise to the ability to see the spiritual path as of the utmost priority. Not meditation as just an extra hobby or something extra that one does when one isn't feeling well. But as the means for transcending our human condition. Now that we're very shortly going home back to our usual environment and our usual preoccupations, maybe it will be helpful to talk about what we can do to keep some Dhamma going in everyday life. Dhamma means the law, the law of nature, or the teaching of the Buddha. Whichever word you prefer, it doesn't matter. You see, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. That's a later invention. The Buddha taught the Dhamma, the absolute truth, the law of nature. If we are really interested in having that as part of our lives, we've got to incorporate it. We can't expect that hearing it once or twice or reading a book about it or just meeting somebody who seems to know is going to make a great big change in our lives. Nothing will happen that way. It's got to become our own Dhamma. The Buddha said, Who sees me, the Buddha, sees the Dhamma. Who sees the Dhamma sees me. The Buddha himself was nothing but enlightenment incorporated in a person. And when one saw that, one saw the Dhamma, the truth the law of nature. And when one can see that within oneself, one sees enlightenment. So we need to incorporate that into ourselves, into our lives, and make it high priority. Because if we do, everything else falls into place. All the mundane matters work out quite easily. They work out quite easily because, first of all, our desires are less, our karma is better, and our direction is such that it hasn't got so many obstacles in it. The obstacles are our negative reactions. They become less and less, so there are less and less obstacles. Everything works much easier. How do we do this? Well, there are quite a number of suggestions. 
The day has 24 hours. Seven hours sleep should be plenty for any grown-up. So that leaves us with 17 hours. Well, we need maybe three hours a day for eating and washing up and preparing and so on. That leaves us with 14 hours. Now, if we don't use any of these 14 hours a day for remembering and practicing Dhamma, we certainly haven't got a spiritual path. If we take out of those 14 hours an hour or maybe even two a day for meditation, that would be fine. But what about the rest of the hours? Half the day with nothing, 12 hours, nothing, just the world. That doesn't work. Meditation won't work and the spiritual life won't work. The worldly life might work the way it always has. So we need to have something on hand for the rest of those hours in a day which helps us to keep the teaching in mind and to show us how it is possible in everyday life to let go, to respond lovingly and compassionately and to show, to change our negative thinking into positive. So the priority of, in that is mindfulness. Attention on what's going on with us. Attention on our physical movements, which are often quite unnecessary and often also not considerate to others. When we pay attention to them, we have no problem at that time because we're mindful. We cannot have a problem and be mindful at the same time. Mindfulness is, according to the Buddha's words, the one way for the purification of beings, for the elimination of pain, grief and lamentation, for the final letting go of all dukkha, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana. Mindfulness, paying attention. As we pay attention, it becomes more and more profound, deeper and deeper. The first foundation is the body. So in those three hours that we eat, wash up, prepare, we can be mindful of our physical movements. Not only are we far more efficient then, but also we're purifying. We can't be negative if we're mindful. The purification which takes place when we're mindful is automatic. Purification of heart and mind is the spiritual path. There isn't anything else. Purity leads to clarity. And clarity leads to the profundity of insight into absolute truth. So that's the first foundation of mindfulness. Naturally, there's far more to be said about that, but it will have to suffice at the moment. Second one is feeling, that's our emotions. I've talked at length about that. 
to substitute the negative emotion with the positive one again and again recognition no blame change that's all that's necessary doesn't sound difficult does it it takes attention seeing it recognizing I'm only hurting myself when I'm getting angry when I'm upset when I'm worried when I'm desiring all of these things are only hurtful to me so only a fool hurts him or herself voluntarily so why am I foolish why not substitute with the positive ones the positive emotions are unconditional love compassion sympathetic joy and equanimity these are the positive emotions which we can use to substitute the negative ones naturally if we're full of hate and uh, disgust at somebody or resistance and rejection it won't be possible to immediately change that into unconditional love that's asking a bit much but at least we can try to explain to ourselves how unfortunate such a feeling is for ourselves within ourselves that the karma we're making is bad that we won't be able to meditate with such a feeling so we can hopefully change it into some neutral feeling at first and then into compassion compassion because we have recognized that all of us have the same dukkha nobody is exempt some of us deal with it a little better that's all some of us don't deal with it at all suppress it and some of us don't deal with it very well get quite upset about it but we've all got the same so we have that as our second foundation of mindfulness recognizing the feeling substituting the third one is the recognition of our mental states our moods and not allowing them to be negative but changing them before they get full-blown into reactions this one is a little bit difficult because we may not be used to recognizing our moods which haven't really established themselves yet as an emotion or as a thought but the fourth one is vitally helped by the labeling we learn in meditation it's a content of thought so in everyday life we substitute the negative the unskillful thought with a skillful one again and again it may not work every time it will not work every time but the attempt alone is already the spiritual practice sitting on a pillow is only one part of the spiritual practice the spiritual practice of the buddhist teachings divided into three parts sila samadhi and panya sila is moral conduct virtue which is this substitution of the negative into the positive samadhi is the meditation the concentration and panya is wisdom all three work together so the meditation helps us greatly and has automatic uh, built-in features which um, help us to change 
But if we don't use the hours of the day for paying attention to ourselves, mindfulness, and changing the negative to the positive, we're meditating in vain. And then the other thing that needs to be said is that meditation, and I have already said that at the beginning of the course, but there's no harm in repeating such things, has to be done as regularly as eating. It's the only thing that keeps the mind in shape. There is nothing else. And if our mind is not in shape, our life is not in shape. The life is directed by our mind. So it's got to be regular. So there's a few things I'd like to suggest about that. Those of you who live in this area, and I understand there are quite a few of you, according to the addresses, there is a meditation group meeting at Susan's house, unfortunately only every fortnight. I have already voiced my disapproval of that. <laughs> it should meet every week. And maybe, hopefully, Susan can manage to do something about that. Anyone who lives in this area, I would suggest to join that and go there and meditate together. You can't have a better support system. The group energy supports. And also, having friends who do the same as you do and have the same aspiration is an utterly necessary part of spiritual life. The Venerable Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and his attendant for 25 years, once said to the Buddha, friend is the whole of the holy life and you can translate holy into spiritual life. Good friends are those that support our spiritual endeavors, those that can see the value in that and would like to help us with it. We also call the good friend, the Karyanamitta, the meditation teacher. That's a special relationship that can be established but it has to be established. It doesn't appear on its own. It gets established through contact, repeated contact. But if we have people who also meditate and have those same thoughts and wishes that we have for a spiritual life, it's very important to join them at least once a week. It's a support system which is so helpful that without it, the meditation very often does not get continued. But it shouldn't just be a once-a-week endeavor or once-a-fortnight endeavor. As uh, I explained to someone, if we were studying at the university, and wanted to get a degree in something, and we went once a fortnight for the lectures, I'm sure we wouldn't have got the degree. It's impossible. We had to go every day. This is science of the mind. Meditation is science of the mind. There is no other. This is it. Science means it's repeatable, it's explainable, and it's available to everyone. It's step by step. 
just like science always is. So we do need the daily meditation. And everybody should find an hour, um, <coughs> for beginners, half an hour. For those who have already meditated for some years, an hour. Now, if beginners start with half an hour, they should try and work up. Add five minutes every two weeks or something like that. Much better than the other way around. Cutting off five minutes every two weeks. Because by the time that the three or four months are up, there's nothing left. <laughs> so add five minutes every two weeks until you get it at least to three-quarter hour, preferably one hour. As you do it slowly, one hour sitting will not be any hardship. For those of you who've done it for some time already, maybe you'll want to start with three-quarter hour and work up to an hour. Do it regularly at the same time each day, like cleaning your teeth. That's a habit we established. When we were little kids, our mothers used to tell us that we had to go and clean our teeth. And I'm sure we said, ah, not now, or I'll do it later, or I've done it already. Why do I have to do that every night? And I don't like it. But she insisted, and we're still doing it today. And, we don't, and now we know why we're doing it. So in the case of meditation, be your own mother. Let her talk to you, saying, sit down and meditate. And then the kid says, I'll do it later. Or, I'll do it tomorrow. Or, why should I do this every day? And mother says, no, no, now right now, every day. So have a dialogue and let mother win. <laughs> <laughs> Although we don't believe it, but mother knows best. <laughs> have it every, time, every day at the same time. Our minds are habitual. Have it at the same place. Put a pillow in a corner of your room, wherever that may be, wherever you have a little space doesn't have to have a full meditation room, just a little corner somewhere. Have a pillow there, have a flower vase there, have a Buddha there, whatever you like, have a picture on the wall, have stark white walls, whatever you prefer. But leave the pillow there, so that in the morning when you get up, you don't have to run around trying to figure out where you left it last night. Leave it sitting there. Have everything ready. We don't take the chairs out of our dining room. We don't take the pots out of the kitchen. We don't take the towels out of the bathroom. We leave it all there. So leave that there too. And then sit. And whether you get concentrated or not, it doesn't matter. I've explained to you already, and I'm sure you remember some of that, that there are benefits no matter what happens. Becomes a habit. Sit every day. If you can manage, morning and evening, so much the better. If you have jobs which are time-wise somewhat difficult, adjust your time somehow or other. Early morning is best because if you have children or dogs or things like that, they haven't woken up yet. The garbage man hasn't come yet and the telephone doesn't ring yet. So early morning is a very good time. In fact, very early morning is nice because it seems to be quiet outside too. 
the kookaburras don't wake up so early and uh, everything seems to be sort of in a state of suspension which we can then relate to inside of ourselves to this quietness outside so it's very important that that's a regular habit now for those of you who don't live in this area and don't have a group um, at the Buddhist Society in Richmond at 226 Mary Street they have regular meditation <coughs> evenings every Monday night and every Thursday night if there are teachers there there'll be talks also a meditation and a Dhamma talk so I've put a few of the newsletters from this Buddhist Society here and a few of the little slips where people can join the Society just to give you the address if you can get to Richmond it's a good place to join in a meditation group I myself am going to go uh, give a talk there at 226 Mary Street Monday night and Thursday night this coming week at 8 o'clock and Wednesday night there will be a public talk at the South Yarra Library which has this poster there so that's another opportunity to join a group if you already have a group that's fine if you don't live anywhere where you can join another group start one two people make a group start it people have started meditation groups all over the world there's so many people that would like to do it and you'll find that the friends you make are really people that you can usually relate to very well because birds of a feather flock together so it is again something very helpful if you're on your own at home and try to do it on your own at home it's very commendable and admirable but difficult so find that helpfulness through other people books are good and helpful they don't answer questions at least not yours some of them do answer questions but somebody else's sometimes they are the only available source of information but a Buddhist book, a teaching book like these books of mine are they're teaching books all three are containing three different meditation courses of ten days each a teaching book should not be read like an ordinary novel the best way to read a book like that is to read one chapter or one page whichever you prefer and after having read that page to see whether you can remember what it says and then read it again because you probably don't and then if you still don't remember what it says write down the main teaching of that page in three or four words and then practice that and when you feel you have actually taken that in and it has become yours and no longer the books take the next chapter or the next page it's a teaching which we can use and particularly of course the Buddhist teaching has to be used that way because obviously the Buddha isn't here to ask any questions I'm still here to ask questions to be asked questions so if you do this what I've just said use the books in that way 
read one page, remember it, write down the essence in three or four words, practice that essence, and then go on with the book. And you have questions, you can write to me. And if you want to, I can give you the address which is best to write to. I answer all my letters, only sometimes it takes a little while because I don't happen to be at the place where the letter arrives. They're always forwarded to me. These are possibilities. There are, of course, other groups where you may live near to, which I don't know about in Melbourne. So anything that helps to support your practice. Before we do our last loving-kindness meditation together and the sharing of merits, Here's a chance once more to ask your last question. Hmm. Oh, with, um, with anger, um, you mentioned that you can, you can transform it into something else and, and therefore it's positive. But some, um, like we sort of grown up with the thought, the belief that if you bottle up anger, if you don't express it, it's very bad for you if it stays inside, it has all sorts of effects. So does dissipating, transforming the anger, do the same as the sort of the negative thing that you really not need to do, which is letting it out and hurting mm. it? Well, the thought that not expressing anger is bad for you is of course absurd. Expressing anger is bad for you. Suppressing anger is bad for you. But you can only substitute something for something else that you have fully recognized. So after you've fully recognized your anger, you then substitute with something else. You transform into something else. You haven't suppressed it by no means. If you suppress the anger, you're not aware of it. You pretend you haven't got it. That, of course, is detrimental. That is not useful. But expressing anger is also detrimental to oneself because it makes ruts in the mind of anger where it becomes easier and easier to be angry. Where in the end, maybe you know somebody, some people are constantly angry. So that's not the way. Suppressing is no good. But expressing is also no good. It's neither suppression nor expression. It is change. Is that clear? Yes. You said one of the problems with sex was the loss of energy, the expenditure of energy. What about having exercise? You also expend energy with exercise. The uh, desire that is connected with exercise is not comparable to the desire that's connected with sex. And the expenditure of energy that is done in sex is not so much the physical, although that's part of it too, but it is particularly the mental-emotional. Our energy comes from our mind. It doesn't come from our body. The mind is in charge of everything. So the connection that we have in the sexual um, relationship is particularly detrimental to our mental-emotional um, energy because that's expanded fully. 
So the physical energy that we get from, uh, that we use in exercise, the desire behind that is usually to keep the body supple, which is quite um, a neutral uh, desire, and it doesn't really do any harm. In fact, you know, to keep the body supple makes it easier to sit. Yes. Um, is it not possible to have sex without a loss of mental energy? I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> you try. <laughs> it's mostly emotional energy. It's emotional, no? Yes. Bit off the beaten track. Um, you're saying bad karma if you're reborn much quicker than if you if you have good karma. Just explain. Well, uh, <laughs> it's not quite like that. It's, um, it's like this. A person who is very little developed on the spiritual path will be reborn very quickly because there are so many uh, possibilities. There are so many wombs where that person can go to because the most of humanity is undeveloped. But a person that's very highly developed on the spiritual path will take much longer to reappear um, because there are not so many possibilities where that, where that karmic entity can reappear. So that's a little bit like good and bad karma. It's a development. Yes? Um, again, on the karma, if one of the teachings is that all, all is impermanence, yet there's something that keeps on reincarnating. Doesn't that mean that there is something that's permanent? Yes, as long as you think you're you, that's it. You think you is there, and that you will have the karmic resultants and will reincarnate in a certain way, not as you, but as something. But as, as soon as you have found out that there isn't a you, the whole thing collapses. Yes. Can you say something about uh, the doctrine of no-self? I guess it's connected with that. Uh, <laughs> it sure can, but not in the next three minutes, which is about all the time that I have. The, the no-self is the uh, goal and the, um, the essence of the Buddha's teaching. And it takes a lot of practice, practice in all ways, purifying practice, which is the purification of mind and heart and the practice of the meditative path to even see a glimmer of that. And seeing a glimmer, then one sees that there is a possibility of liberation. But um, to really explain that, it takes more than a weekend course. I usually do get to explaining a lot about it, quite a lot about it, in, uh, for instance, a two-week course. Yes. Have you talked about the fact that we choose our own parents? Would you like to elaborate on that? No. What would you like to know? Ask me a question. It's like water finding its own level. The karmic entity finds its own level. So wherever our karma has brought us on what level, that level we're going to. It's like water finding its own level. 
so we, we, we really have no one to blame, you know. <laughs> it's very unfortunate, yes. What, what is finding a sound level? The karmic entity. You really would like to be reborn. That's okay. Unless you, unless you become enlightened this time, you will be. But you won't be the same person. You see, there is nobody. That's all a myth, that's all uh, an illusion, that's all a thought process that we have established. And since everybody believes it, we all believe it. But in reality, there's nobody there. Nobody here. <laughs> in our minds. <laughs> that's where everybody is, in their minds. <laughs> And that's where we make up all these stories. <laughs> yes. The whole world, everything we see, in fact, is in the same category. It's a mind construct. It's everything is. Yes. Yes. It's all a mind construct. The whole world, everything, the way you see it, you've made up yourself. And nobody, amongst five billion people, sees it exactly in the same way. And from that, you can already deduce that you've made it up yourself. And if you find somebody that sees it similarly, soulmates. <laughs> yes. There is the commonality that everyone sees. Everyone might see illusion or it's all different, but yeah. everyone is still seeing. Yeah, sure. So something's happening, Mr. Yeah, the mind is working, sure. Yeah. So when everybody's sitting here meditating, everybody's getting distracted, sure, but everybody's getting distracted by something else. One thinks about the children at home, one thinks about the husband, one about the wife, one about sexual desire, one about lunch, one about uh, going home. <laughs> but it's all distraction. But everybody has their own mind constructs. Sure, it's all happening. There's something behind all that. Yes. Um, can you just explain what the word jhana means? Yes, meditative absorption. Um, and there's several of them, isn't there? Eight. 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 Um, yes. Eye, eyes, wearing eyes, eyes, eyes. I went to some pains to explain the first one. The word jhana, J-H-A-N-A, is the Pali word for the meditative absorption, which means that finally the mind has stopped talking for a little while. And these factors which I've explained come into play, particularly those two, which are the light and joy, whereas the other three which I've explained are always there in any meditation. Is that clear? Okay. Anything else? All right, we've run out of questions. So what we'll do is we'll, well, we'll stand up and stretch our legs for a moment. <coughs> In order to start, please put the attention on the breath.
Imagine that you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart which opens all its petals until it's fully, fully open. And out of the center of the lotus flower comes a golden stream of light which fills you from head to toe with warmth and light and contentment and joy. And the golden stream of light surrounds you with a feeling of love, well-being, safety. Now direct the golden stream of light from the center of your heart to the person sitting nearest you and fill him or her with warmth, light and joy. And let the golden stream of light surround that person with love and a sense of well-being. And now direct the golden stream of light from the center of your heart to reach everyone here, filling everyone from head to toe with light, love and warmth and surround everyone with a sense of well-being, contentment. Think of your parents and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them, filling them with light and love and warmth, surrounding them and embracing them with joy and contentment.
Now think of your nearest and dearest people, those that you might live with. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts, filling them with love and light and warmth, surrounding them with that golden stream of light that brings joy and a sense of well-being. Think of your good friends, those that you might see soon, and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them, filling them from head to toe with the light and the love and the warmth from your heart, and surrounding them and embracing them with the depths of friendship. Now think of those people whom you'll meet in your daily lives, neighbors, colleagues at work, salespeople, postmen, whoever appears in your daily activities, let them all arise before your mind's eye. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to all of their hearts, filling them with love and light and warmth and joy, and embracing them with care and concern, giving them a sense of well-being.
think of anyone with whom you might have difficulties or if there isn't such a person anyone towards whom you feel totally indifferent and recognize that as a blockage in your own heart and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to that person filling him or her with the love and the light and the warmth that come from your heart embracing that person with compassion knowing that we all have suffering Open your heart as wide as possible. Let the golden stream of light flow out of it with light and warmth and love to people everywhere, near and far. First those that are around here on this island, then further afield, people living in the villages and towns near here, and then further Melbourne let this love and light flow from your heart filling other people's hearts as far as the whole state of Victoria the whole country as far as the strengths of your heart will reach Imagine our planet and let the golden stream of light from your heart full of love and warmth reach out to all living beings in the water, on land, in the air, human or otherwise, known or unknown, seen or unseen. Give it as much strength as you can to reach out to as many beings as possible.
put your attention back on yourself and feel the joy <clears throat> and the contentment that comes from giving and loving fill yourself with those from head to toe and surround yourself with love and light and warmth being contented at ease And now let the golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower which closes its petals and then anchor the lotus flower in your heart so that it may become one with it. We share the merits of this meditation retreat with all our teachers, our parents, our loved ones, our friends and our enemies. We share the merits with Susan and Mendy who have been instrumental in making it happen and all their helpers we share the merits with the cooks who kept us alive we share the merits with the people who run this center and give us the benefit of using it we share the merits with all the creatures living here whom we were able to enjoy we share the merits with each other we share the merits with all the devas that may be present and with all beings who may have some benefit from these merits May all beings be happy and become liberated. May you all be very happy. I now officially end this meditation retreat and noble silence is lifted. There are a number of ways of making good karma and one of the ways is listening to Dhamma. 
as you've done here. And another way of making good karma is teaching the Dhamma. So I'd like to thank you all very much for having given me the opportunity of making good karma by coming here and listening to me. Thank you.